And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I grew up in New York devouring the writings of big city columnists like Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, who came to reflect their city. And then I moved to Chicago, where Mike Royko was the man. He was Chicago. In Boston, that guy was Mike Barnacle. Uh, who dominated the city for years with his daily column, now can be seen on a regular basis on uh, the Morning Joe show. I sat down with Mike the other day to talk about newspapering, his beloved Red Sox, and the state of the world. Mike Barnacle, it is uh, great to be with you. You, uh, uh, as we've discussed many times, and we'll talk about it a little later, um, I am uh, the product of big city newspapering, both career-wise, and I grew up in New York reading Breslin and Hamill and all those guys, and and you were uh, part of that class of people who represented their cities so well every every uh, other day in, uh, in the newspaper. But I want to, before we get to all of that, I want to talk about how you got there and um, about how you grew up and uh, how that shaped uh, who you are. Yeah, well, I mean, literally, newspapering, daily columns, we are literally talking about another century. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, just newspapers alone. You know, yeah. you mentioned newspapers to kids under you no. know, a certain age, and they're like, they yeah. look at you like, where would I find one of those? Yeah, is it know? on my screen, on my phone? <laughs> exactly. Is it on my iPad? Yes. You know, I was very fortunate, as I suspect you were. I grew up in... Uh, a poor mill town in central Massachusetts, Fitchburg, Fitchburg Mass. Massachusetts, yeah. uh, which was closer then to Boston uh, than it is today because of all the trains that ran between the two cities. Fitchburg was a city of about 55,000 people. My father worked for the Public Works Department. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom until my dad died in 1960 when we were all quite young, uh, and she went back to school. Uh, was that a sudden thing? Was that expected, your dad? Well, you know, he died of a heart attack. It was his third heart attack. And uh, given given the way medicine and medical information was then, he thought when he had his second heart attack in 1956 that he would go on a health kick and change from Lucky Strikes to Kent Filters. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so after he, after he passed away, my mom went to the old, uh, into the old state... Uh, teacher's college system that they used to have in Massachusetts and got a BA degree. She was from Ireland uh, and ended up teaching parochial school for about 35 years. And But growing up, back to newspapers, David, you can, again, link up with this. I bet we got five or six newspapers yeah. a day in our house. I mean, they were two cents a piece, five cents a piece. Would get the New York papers the next day and read them as if they were that day's news. Because your folks wanted to read them. They wanted to read them and they wanted to talk about the news and talk about what was going on, not only in the city. Where did that come from? Why were they so. Because they were, they were both from Ireland. I see. And, and they were both so in love with the idea that they were in America, the yeah. United States of America. And uh, my uncle, my father's brother, who I never knew, uh, was killed at Midway on June 4th, 1942. 
and uh, my grandmother, we all lived together, my grandmother, my aunt, uh, you know, my parents, my brothers and I. And uh, they would talk about the war. They would talk about missing Gerald. Uh, they would tell me about Midway. Uh, they had a letter, a signed letter from Franklin Delano Roosevelt mm-hmm. hanging on the wall. Uh-huh. They had his medals in little leather boxes. A letter of condolence. From yes, him. yeah. yeah that they had, they, the first letter that they had was missing in action, a telegram actually, from George C. Marshall. Um, and the medals were all lined up. On like a little altar. It was an end table, but it looked like an altar to me as a kid with the Purple Heart in it, the Distinguished Service Cross, second highest award given uh, by the military in this country next to the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so it was a household. The apartment was suffused with stories, endless stories about Ireland, about America, about the war, about Roosevelt, how he saved this country, Mm -hmm. about Harry Truman. Uh, I, I I never knew what a Republican was growing up because of the ethos that that they that they. Most Republicans don't even know what Republicans are right now. So. No, no, that's gone. <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, talk to me a little bit about the. I'm a first generation American. Talk to me about uh, how you view, and we'll get. Back, I want to get back to your narrative. I can't. I I've got to get to also. Not, not just the roots of your interest in newspapers and politics, but also baseball, and we're going to get to that. Um, but talk about how you view today's debate about immigration uh, through the eyes of a kid who grew up with two immigrant parents. Not only two immigrant parents, but again, the street that I grew up on, there was Abe Snegg, the tailor who fled Poland. Uh, there was the Scopignato family, who fled Mussolini. Uh, there were multiple numbers of Finnish Americans in the city uh, who, who fled Europe. It was a city of immigrants, built by immigrants. And the idea today that I look at our government uh, injecting such a heavy dose of fear into the idea of immigration and immigrants themselves is offensive to me. It's offensive to me as an American citizen who know the value that immigrants bring to this country. And, you know, don't, don't tell anybody, but occasionally, a couple of times a week, I drop by this church over, when I'm in New York, over in the west side, St. Paul the Apostles. Beautiful church. And they have a 7.30 mass there in the mornings. And on some mornings when I'm not working at Morning Joe and I'm in New York, I go to the mass not because I'm religious, but because it's a place to sit and reflect, and it's not noisy. And you look around and you see the people at the Mass, and you know just by looking at them that they were not born here. They're from Haiti, and they're from the Dominican, and they're from Vietnam. And why are they here? They're here because this country is the same today as it was to my parents and everybody on the street I grew up on. They're here because America is an idea. You know, the idea of freedom, freedom to worship, freedom to think what you want, to say what you want, to go where you want. So today... Well, and to to, to make something of your lives, the freedom, yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, that, work that, hard and you can make it. Yeah. But, you know, um, what, what was what was the product? What, 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 how did Fitchburg's economy uh, go? What was it that made Fitchburg... Paper mills. Yeah. Paper mills and... Uh, 
you know, machine shops. Uh, there was a company called Ivory Johnson. In a strange twist of history, they made the handgun that killed Robert Kennedy. Huh. <laughs> strange, weird, but it was machine shops and paper mills. But uh, I guess my, my question is, my point is, um, it is in these small towns where industry has gone away mm. uh, that you see a lot of the the, the, the audience for uh, for a Donald Trump and for this nativist mm. message. So it's actually, I mean, the the precincts you grew up in and used to write about sure. in Patrol were the greatest resistance uh, to um, institute to you know institutions and um, immigration and trade and uh, so. You know, I I, hear, I agree with you, but how do we bridge that divide? How do we bridge it, or how did it happen? Well, well, what, maybe we should start with how did it happen, and then how do we bridge it? Yeah, well, I think how it happened is that Trump, for all that he is, and a lot of it's very ugly, uh, he is an expert, I think, on resentment. I mean, he knows instinctively how to tap that resentment cell in everyone. And I don't think the Democrats or many Americans uh, have paid enough attention to what happened in this country from about 2006, 2007 on up until this day. So the economy collapses, right, in 2008. And uh, because so many people at the top of the pyramid confused the stock market with the economy, that's not the economy. You know, the economy is your weekly wage. Right. So you've got millions of Americans, uh, you know, who maybe lost their retirement savings. Many of them maybe lost their homes. Uh, maybe many of them lost their sense of hope or faith in the country because of what happened to them economically. And I think, strangely enough, a lot of them, a huge percentage of them, were the same people, the same people who risked losing a son or a daughter in the longest war we've ever fought. Their children are going to fight the war, and they're walking around with no job and no money. Yeah. And he tapped into that. He did, and it seems to me that there was a default on the part of the Democratic Party because uh, there was no real effort uh, to reach out to, uh, you know, that half of the country. Right. And, and if you look at the Democrats today, I mean, God love them. Uh, I mean, I, I, I sometimes wonder what they're doing. Uh, if you look around, if you walk around, if you go around the country today, these same people that we're talking about, there's an element of the Democratic Party that talks about them and looks at them as if they're a lab experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, well, let's go to Ohio and tell working class people how bad Trump is. That's not going to get the job done. Right. Uh, I mean, it, uh, this is my view. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that those very people look uh, at uh, the folks you're talking about, um, the elites, with great suspicion. Yes. They, because they, and I think it was maybe encapsulated when Hillary said the deplorables. Yes. Uh, that's what they think uh, folks in New York and, you know, Boston and L.A. and Yeah, the coastals. Know, right. The coastal elites. Uh, think of them. <laughs> Let's go back to you 
And I, I said I'd mentioned baseball. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about your first. You are you are probably America's most <laughs> prominent and well-known Boston Red Sox fan. Oh, uh, talk God. to me about that first uh, visit to uh, uh, to Fenway. Well, it began before my first visit to Fenway, and an odd stroke of family fortune or whatever. Uh, my uncle George. Uh, Pitched for the Boston Braves in 1939, 40, 41. He had several cups of coffee mm-hmm. with a major league team before the war. And after the war, he was, he was not a baseball player. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But because of his experience in the major leagues, he knew many of the guys he played with and against in the early 50s were either coaches or managers, like Al Lopez was the yes. manager of the Chicago White Sox. Yes. He was a great pal of my uncle's. So my uncle used to take us out in the street outside the house, and we would play stickball, and he would throw. And he was a former major league pitcher. Yeah. He could still throw. Yeah. And he threw at us, behind <laughs> us, uh-huh. uh, to teach us not to fear the baseball, that it only sting a while. Uh, and eventually, uh, one day he took us to Fenway Park. It was probably the first time I was at Fenway Park. My dad took me to see Joe DiMaggio. Uh-huh. He wanted me to see Joe DiMaggio. Uh, and it was Joe DiMaggio's last year in baseball. 51, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I have a vague, vague memory of it. Of seeing, I don't remember seeing Joe DiMaggio, but one thing I do remember is the startling green. <laughs> yeah. of the wall the green the monster grass huh? when we came up the ramp uh-huh. into the ballpark it's a great ballpark yeah and we sat up in section 16 up in the last row but it didn't matter uh, but my uncle took us a couple of times when friends of his were in town with their teams like the white Sox, mm-hmm. and uh we'd sit on the bench uh-huh. and watch batting practice and it was oh my god this was heaven uh and you know, because of my age, the age factor, I can still give you the lineups of the Red Sox in like 1954, 1955, now, that 56. That must have been uh, in the Jimmy Pearsall days. Jimmy Pearsall was center fielder, number 37 from Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh-huh. It's much more than fear strikes out. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, Jimmy Pearsall, Tommy Umflett, Gene Stevens, Dom DiMaggio, Dominic DiMaggio, all of them. Sammy White was the catcher, George number 22. George Kell, they, they got him from the Tigers in right. a trade. He was yeah. great. Yeah. Hall of Famer, obviously. Yeah. So tell me, what, you, what, is it, what is it about baseball? Because we're both big baseball fans. Um, if my wife, Susan, who, 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 who will listen because she's a, we're friends, and she'll want to hear what you have to say, maybe you can be more successful than I have. And her complaint is it's too slow. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Talk to talk. Talk to her and everybody about what it is about baseball that you so uh, well, I, I, so value, well, so relish. Well, what I value and what I relish isn't going to draw anybody to the ballpark, you know, because, you know, I like to watch, you know, where's the shortstop moving? What does the second right, baseman right. tell me? Stuff like that. Yes. But I, I, I would tell Susan and anybody else that of all the major sports we have, baseball is the most reflective yes. sport we have. If you want to go with your husband or your son or your, you want to take your son or daughter to a game, you can actually talk to them while the game is going. You can have a conversation, not about baseball, 
but about school, what's going on in their lives. You can talk about things and uh, not really miss a moment of action. Right. So you can do that. And it's also, I think, the most magical of games because of the design of the game and the geometry of the game, 90 feet in between the bases and all that stuff and everything like that. But the movement of players, yeah. I mean, they're so gifted. And the idea that, you know, some kid, 19 years of age, you know, can step into the plate and he can hit a 98-mile-an-hour fastball. Yeah. And the other aspect of it is that you go to a baseball game and you see the players and you say, you know something, they look like me. They're not in helmets. They're not 6'8", six, 6'10", six, stuff right. like that. They don't weigh 315 pounds. And you think to yourself, you know, I want to play catch when I go home. You know, yeah. <laughs> just like them. Well, I, uh, you know, I always say to, her, to, to Susan, you know, you, she's a big basketball fan. I say, yeah, we go to a basketball game. You go to a hockey game. You go to a football game. But when you go to a baseball game, you, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. Yeah. It's a park. It's a, it's not a stadium. It's not yeah, and you and and for all the reasons that you said, my father I mentioned was an immigrant, learned how to play baseball before he learned English, I think, and ended up doing very well. Played with Hank Greenberg in the Sandlots of, of of New York. But we spent every weekend at the ballpark yeah. when I was a kid, and uh, you know times that I'll never forget. Yeah. Uh, so that I I knew that you would say that. <laughs> and I'm trying to make a point out here uh, for all of those who complain well, about well, baseball. Well, I, I'll, t I'll tell you just one story uh, about, you know, your dad took you, you know, to the game on weekends and everything like that after he arrived in the country, his love of baseball and all that. Uh, so I have like a disease about the Red Sox. I mean, I'm just hopelessly yes. afflicted and, <laughs> and, 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 and addicted. And 2003, uh, I took. Well, 2003, Timmy Barnacle, our youngest boy, uh, in 2004, he missed a combination of the two falls, 2003-2004, 43 days of school, because I took him on road trips with the team. <laughs> 2003, the horrific ending of the American League Championship Series, the Aaron Boone home run in Yankee Stadium, yes. we were all there. And Timmy was seated next to me, and we had good seats. We were right behind John Henry, the owner, by the Red Sox dugout in Yankee Stadium. The game is over, uh, and Colin Barnacle, my middle son, pokes me in the arm, and he says, Dad, he says, you better take care of Tim. And I look down, <laughs> and Timmy, 10 years of age, is in his seat with his favorite faded green Red Sox cap that he got at St. Patrick's Day at spring training. And he has tears as big as manhole covers coming down his face. And I look at him and I say to myself, oh, my God, what have I done? I've passed this on to him. A year <laughs> well, later, he was rewarded a year later. A year later, I called them all up. They were in different places. Timmy was home with us, obviously. Colin and Nick were in Washington at school. And I said, boys, we're all going back. And we went back, and after Game 7 in Yankee Stadium in 2004, I have a picture of Tim Barnacle running the bases in Yankee Stadium five minutes after the game is over, and he runs right into the arms of Trot Nixon. Uh, yeah, it was an outfielder for the yeah. Red Sox. So uh, that, is, um, that is the great thing about sports, right? Because it's something that you can be absolutely desperately passionate about <clears throat> that at the end of the day doesn't mean anything right but it means everything yeah they'll yeah. remember that as long as they live yeah 
So you, uh, just to return to your your story, you worked uh, as a kid uh, at the uh, in a bureau of the Telegram and Gazette. Yeah, the Fitchburg Bureau. Dave so Bill- did you know at that time you wanted to be a newspaper man? You know, I, I, I think I sort of did. I didn't really know. I mean, I'm like 15 years of age. It was fun. I used to run quotes from city council meetings. There was a crazy mayor of Fitchburg, a guy born in Britain. Uh, Headley Bray was his name. And he was nuts. And he used to say these crazy, you wild things. sound like things. an Irishman. But- yeah. And I'd, I'd take the quotes back and give them to Dave Gilmartin. And Dave would tell me, you know, yeah, he's crazy. Gil Martin, right? And uh, it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And then, you know, I get to go to Boston University. I get into Dartmouth, and I get into BU, and my mother wouldn't let me. My father was dead. My mother wouldn't let me go to Dartmouth because she didn't really know where it was and what it was about. Mm-hmm. So I went to BU, and I got a part-time job working at the old Boston Record uh, as a copy boy in the old sports department that they had, and I couldn't believe the fact that they paid these guys to go to ball games. Mm-hmm. You know, and they all had a bottle of whiskey in the drawer of their desk and the old, you know, Underwood typewriters, yeah. click, click, click. And I'd, you know, I'd take the, rip the carbon yeah, yeah. and everything like that and take it down, put it in a tube and phew, yeah. send it down to the composer. But I couldn't believe it. These guys get paid for doing this. Yeah. This is, and they had so much fun. They're always laughing and smoking and drinking yeah. and talking about ball games. And I said, "Geez, I'd kind of like to do this." And I finally got to it about five or six years later. You uh, and in, in between, you you did political stuff. Yeah. Well, I went to Washington, uh, wanting to get a job in Congress because I couldn't get a job in Congress because I didn't know anybody. So I ended up getting a job. The only job I could get in Washington was running an elevator. What do you re- remember about that? I remember everything. I remember everything. I was an elevator operator in the Cannon House office building in the corner right across in the Library of Congress. And I can clearly recall who were good guys and who were bad guys. And they were all guys in the Congress back then. Jim O'Hara from Michigan, he was a great guy. Um, I think he founded something called the Democratic Study Group. Uh-huh, yeah, which still uh, exists, yeah. William Fitzryan from New York, yeah. a really good guy. Bob Dole, he was on the third floor, a really good guy. Dominic Daniels from New Jersey, kind of a cranky guy. Uh, I remember all those guys. Uh, and But the guy I met who had the most impact on my life at that stage was Tip O'Neill. Because I got a part-time job bartending at his parties in the Rayburn building. And I ended up, after a very short period of time, driving him home every once in a while after the parties. He lived with Eddie Boland, another congressman yeah. from Massachusetts, yes. in an apartment on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, where the only thing they had in their refrigerator, David, was fresca and cigars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and you uh, worked your way into um, uh, positions in the, uh, in the Bobby Kennedy uh, world. Kenny O'D- I met I had met Kenny O'Donnell at one of Tip's parties, and you know you, you're growing up, you're always looking for something. You know maybe this guy can help me, maybe that guy can help Kenny me. Kenny O'Donnell was JFK's you know right hand guy, right, uh, and uh, and then helped Bobby when Bobby was uh, making his move, right. And Kenny O'Donnell and his aide then Paul Kirk, who was later appointed to the United States Senate many many years later, uh, they helped me get a job as sort of an advance man in the Kennedy campaign. And so I did some advance work uh, for Robert Kennedy. Uh, I got to know, during the course of the campaign, Ted Kennedy and John Tunney. Uh, 
who, you know, eventually I ended up going to California and working with John Tunney and his campaign, Senate campaign. The son of Gene Tunney, the former world heavyweight champion. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the campaign, I spent more time with his father, with Gene Tunney, uh-huh. than I did with John because I couldn't believe the stories he was telling me. Yeah. Just incredible stories about <laughs> going to Cuba and hanging with Hemingway, and Hemingway always wanted to fight him, and he had a, <laughs> and he had a ring, and then Gene Tunney said, no, no, I, I don't want to do that. So finally he was telling me one day he gets in the ring, and you know, Hemingway is sort of boxing around and throwing punches, and he's missing, and Tunney's ducking. Finally, Gene Tunney told me the story. He says, I finally got tired of it. He said, it was a great guy. He said, I gave him a little snap of a left hook, and boom. That was it, huh? Down. Down went Hemingway. He went down like a writer. Down went Hemingway. (laughs) So um, uh, before we get to Tunney, uh, uh, talk to me about Bobby Kennedy. You wrote a really, really moving piece uh, the other day on the on the uh, anniversary of his mm. death uh, on the train on uh, June sixth of, of of sixty-eight, and you were on that train. But before you talk about that journey, talk to him. Uh, talk about him as a politician, because the journey itself and the people who lined up to greet the train kind of spoke to the unique nature of his politics and the ga- and the sort of wide expanse of America that he was able to bring together. Yeah, he, I think at that stage in his life, I obviously don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, He, more than any other politician then or since then, understood something that I think the average American, the ordinary American, really gets to know during the course of a lifetime. He understood loss. He understood damage. He understood what it means to be personally damaged and hurt by an event in your life. And he was able, even without talking about it, and I think he only spoke about it really once in Indianapolis. Yes, the night of the King assassination. Correct. Uh, But he, he had a sense that when you'd see him on the campaign trail, when he was up on that stage talking to a crowd, whether it was in Indianapolis or Gary, Indiana, or wherever, or down south during the, the Senate Nutrition Committee hearings where he took a tour of Appalachia yes. talking about hunger. That they sensed, people seemed to sense that he, that he was vulnerable, that he had a vulnerability about him that made him more human, more approachable. And more empathetic. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I know, I've never seen that since. The other thing that he had was the uh, willingness to challenge orthodoxy, whether it was liberal orthodoxy or conservative orthodoxy. Uh, we were sitting in New York City. There was the famous exchange he had with, I think it was there, maybe it wasn't here, but a student uh, who said, who's going to you know, who, who's gonna fight the, these wars? And he said, you are. Uh, Indiana. Be, yeah, I think it, it was, was in Indiana. Indiana. You're right. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His point being that it, we we need to bear these burdens together if we're going to bear them, and um, you know he had no problem telling hard truths, and uh, there was just this gritty authenticity uh, to him, and, and maybe it was part of that fatalism. Yeah. But he didn't play the games that other politicians played in that regard. He was. He was very much willing to tell people stuff they didn't want to hear. Yeah, I think in retrospect, once he announced, you know, after back and forth and, you know, Lyndon Johnson as president, you know, Lyndon hadn't announced that he wasn't going to run again. So finally he announces on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 
in the Senate caucus room where his brother had announced for the presidency yes. in 1960. Uh, he announces and he runs, and after I think a very brief period of time, he became a truly free man. You know, it's interesting as to why, because um, you know, there's this great book you probably read called "The Last Campaign" by Thurston Clark. Yeah, uh, and the basic sense you got in that book was there was a kind of fatalism around that campaign. There was this sort of cloud hanging over it as if there was almost this sense. Now, maybe this is through the rearview mirror of history, but that um, things were so unsettled and anything could happen and that Kennedy had kind of a fatalistic view of himself and his own life, given what he had lived through with his brother given the nature of the times, maybe that was the part of the freedom that he felt. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. There's the, it's on tape now, uh, and filmed that day, a motorcade through Chinatown in either San Francisco or Los Angeles during the California primary when there was a series of firecrackers set off as the, as the motorcade passed, and the look on his face just the momentary look right. on his face was, you know, is this it? This, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I think people, you know, we talk about how unsettled the times we live in now oh. are. But you think back to 68. Pump the brakes, folks. Today. Yeah, yeah. It's Pump important to have a sense of history. Well, that's a, that's a completely different topic, the fact that we don't know our own history in right. this country. But, yeah, on the day that Robert Kennedy uh, was buried on June 8th, uh, on the day he died, actually, June 6th, 1968, yes. 106 young Americans were killed in Vietnam. In the, in the week that he died, 322 was the total killed in action in Vietnam. In the month of June 68, uh, I, I think it was like over 1,000 uh, mm-hmm. We had over half a million troops yeah. in Vietnam, yeah. riots in American cities. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a police riot at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Yeah, I remember that well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, uh, well, I was a new, I was a kid in New York then and watched that uh, on TV. You mentioned uh, John Tunney. You went and you 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 went on to become a changed a my life speechwriter for John Tunney. It changed my California changed my life. Yeah, I've been across to California. I couldn't believe it. You um, <laughs> uh, that that campaign. Uh, became kind of the um, the basis of the template for this movie, the candidate, yeah. this famous movie that ends with this. Uh, the the his, what do we do now? What do we do now yeah. after the candidate wins? Yeah. Uh, but um, and you actually had a role in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was it's a funny kind of a funny story. Uh, California campaign for the United States Senate. Naturally, you get all sorts of like celebrities drawn to the campaign, a Democrat running against old George Murphy, Republican senator, former actor, friend of Ronald Reagan's. And so we had, you know, a whole bunch of celebrities doing spots and raising money, Gregory Peck and everything like that. And I met one guy during the course of the campaign. His name was Michael Ritchie, really mm-hmm. good guy, smart guy. He had directed a film called Downhill Racer yeah. with Bob Redford. And after the campaign was over, uh, he gave me a call one day and said, hey, Redford is thinking of making a film about politics. And he had a uh, draft of a screenplay written by Jeremy Larner, uh, who used to work for Gene McCarthy. And 
so he asked me to take a look at the screenplay. I said, oh, this is great. I didn't know screenplays from anything. And I got to know Redford through Richie. And uh, Redford, I, I still know Bob very, very well all these years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started hanging with him and making the movie. And he said, you should be in the movie. I said, of course I should. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so he put me in the movie. We used to rewrite the thing. I think the film was made for a total of, I think it was under $5 million. Huh that the film was made for. Yes. And it's still resilient. It's yeah. still, it still looks good today. You, uh, and then you were Fred Muskie when he was running for president. Muskie for the country. Who was the front runner. He was the vice presidential nominee in 68, yeah. ran in 72, and imploded. Yeah. And uh, I, I, again, you know, I, I, I don't, somewhere it, it was written that uh, he, uh, you and he had an exchange and he was shouting at you. Yeah. Uh, God damn it, you people are trying to put me out on a limb. You yeah. want me to commit suicide? Well, Senator Barnacle is supposed to have shot back. What is your vision for the country? And he said, what the hell do I have staff for? I don't think it went just like that, but I, I, the way it went in my memory is that I, I had written a draft of a speech uh, castigating Dick Kleindienst, who was the attorney general. Yeah, under Nixon, yeah. And castigating his handling of the Department of Justice. He could write maybe a lot of it today, yes. okay? And uh, he was looking at the draft of the speech in the in the hotel. George Mitchell was there. I remember that? And he r- ripped it up and, you know, threw it down and turned to me. He said, God damn it. You know, I can't give this speech. He says, what the hell would the people in Maine think about something like this? He says, this is far too harsh. And I said to him pretty much, you know, Senator, come on. The people in Maine. Who gives a fuck about the people in Maine? You know, I mean, you're running for president. You know, this is a Democratic primary. Come on. And that was basically it for me. <laughs> but um, you made contacts along the way that led you uh, to the Boston Evening Globe. Boston Evening Globe. Well, I had known Bob Healy, who was the executive editor of the Globe, uh, since 19... 19- 67, 68, because he used to go to all Tip O'Neill's parties because he was covering the White House then for the Globe. And I just instinctively, internally, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And so after the, after the, uh, the, the uh, Muskie campaign uh, in 72, uh, I called Healy. This is awful now when I think about it. I'm so embarrassed that I did this. <laughs> I asked Healy who was a great, he loved skiing. I don't ski. I never went skiing. I said, hey, uh, I'm going out to uh, Sundance, Utah. He said, I, I was doing some work for Redford then. And I said, you want to come go skiing? He said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So we went out to Sundance. And that's when I put it. I said, Bob. I said, yeah, come on. You know, I want to work for the Globe. Said, oh, wait, yeah, wait, sure. Wait, wait, wait. Then did you have to ski? No. Oh, okay. No, he went skiing. That would have been. Yeah, no. Uh, no. That would have been a high price to. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't try that. So he gave, but but the thing that struck me was that um, did you go right to column writing? Right to column writing. I mean, that's like highly unusual. Yeah, yeah, right to column writing. Three, I used to, and I got paid. Uh, I started out at seventy-five bucks a column. I was writing for my life because I had two little kids, uh, and I used to write. I started writing three a week. And then four a week, then five a week because I needed the money. Uh, I wrote a sports column every other week. Uh, and 
worked out. And uh, when you you started writing in a really kind of uh, tempestuous period in Boston, and we talked about some of the fissures in our society. Um, one of the great conflicts of of the seventies was over school busing in Boston. You wrote a lot about that. Wrote a lot about it. Uh, and again, one of the things you, you learn it, like as a copy boy, actually, you learn it running quotes for Dave Gilmartin from the North Worcester County Bureau of the Telegram. Uh, nothing ever happens in a newsroom. You know, you, you got to go out. You got you to, you know, climb the stairs of tenement. You got to go to the second floor. You got to knock on the door. You, there's nothing better than eye contact. Mm -hmm. uh, and so busing began, and I guess because of my, well, I know, because of my background, because of the way I grew up, the way I was raised, you know, well, there's something wrong here. You know, I mean, they're, they're labeling these people who fear their whole future is gone, their children's future is gone because they got to put them on a bus. You know, well, how about the rich kids in Brookline? How come they're not on buses? You know, what's going on here? And they, what, they ha what happened, and I used to write this, is that they have pitted the, the poor whites in South Boston and Dorchester, white Dorchester, it was white Dorchester and black Dorchester, neighborhoods in Boston then, against poor blacks for the same small share of an increasingly shrinking economic pie. And the schools back then, I mean, you, you graduate from South Boston High School or Dot High, Dorchester High. I mean, Harvard wasn't going to come knocking on your door. If you were lucky, maybe your father had a union card, you know, he'd get you into a union shop. Maybe you could get on the fire or the, or the cops. But, I mean, you know. We had your uh, MSNBC colleague, Lawrence O'Donnell, on a few months ago who grew up in those neighborhoods. And, and he talked about how alien. He got into Harvard, and everybody in the neighborhood was like, uh, what is that? What? How? Sure. You know. Yeah. yeah, but um, now was Kevin White the mayor of Boston at the time? He was the mayor of Boston, and he was one. He was at you know when he was elected, he was considered one of these new age kind of progressive uh, mayors. But that was a defining kind of battle uh, for him. And then there was this woman, Councilman Louise, Louise Day, Day Hicks. Hicks. Yeah, he ran against her. He won the mayoralty the first time. Uh, he ran against Louise Day Hicks. Uh, whose campaign slogan in 1967, running against Kevin White, was, you know where I stand. Mm -hmm. And uh, the school committee back then in Boston was led by a guy by the name of John Kerrigan, who did everything he could, every day that he could, to inject race into the whole issue of the public schools. You know, they're going to take, take your schools away from you. They're going to give it away to black kids. And the, the level of resentment bred a, a, a healthy dose of racism into the into the idea of busing. Busing continued and raged for three or four years, from about 1973 to 1976. And it, the remnants of it, I think, are still there. I mean, there's a whole generation of people now in their 50s and 60s who remember, you know, being moving to the south shore of Boston, Quincy, to get away from the city of Boston because of busing. And there are people who black and white, you know, who were robbed of one element of their futures because they didn't get much of an education during that turbulent period. 
this is the sort of issue that Donald Trump oh, man, would yes. have exploited uh, to the nth degree if he were a practicing politician at the time. Yeah, yeah, because it, the the basis of it really, I mean, it becomes race. You can't ignore that. But the resentment factor, you know, was so enormous, you know, that, you know, the idea that a lot of people had, you know, blacks are all on welfare. You know, blacks live for free in public housing. You know, I work hard. My wife's a waitress. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an iron worker. And this is what they're doing to us. And yeah, Trump would have thrived on that. It was interesting the niche you held because I think uh, you you were seen as someone who could write from the neighborhoods. You know, we had in Chicago, we had Royco and Breslin in New York, as I mentioned. But uh, the reason that uh, they were so successful, Pete Hamill as well in New York, was the same sense of connection to people in neighborhoods. And yet every one of you guys... Uh, if you get to the core of it, would be considered sort of progressive. Um, it's interesting. Uh, explain how you how you how you bridge that divide. You know, I mean, the the answer is I don't know. I mean, it's just in me. But I know what I used to do. It was the greatest job I ever had, uh, and I used to love it. I used to love, you know, just driving around. And I had several stops that I'd make daily to talk to people about what was going on in different neighborhoods. And I used to enjoy meeting people and hearing their stories. And you're right. Uh, you know, I would tell their stories. Uh, I was making more money than they were, but they were still me. I mean, you can change your zip code. But your, your soul, I don't think, changes when you change your zip code. You know, you can move to the suburbs with your family, and you can be making a good living, and you can still write about people who struggle because you know them. You, you grew up with them. You, you are. Part of you is them still. Still today. I, I live, you know, I'm making good money today, as you are. But I, I, I have a fear of the absence of money still today. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I, I have to, I, I have to ask you about how. Well, first of all, before I do, um, you also wrote about some really, really vivid characters in town, including the Bulgers, hmm. uh, one of whom became a political power in the city, the other who became a notorious gangster. Right. Some people said, "Well, you were too sympathetic uh, uh, to them." Talk to me about those guys and how you. I mean, you must have... Did you know them both? I, I knew all three brothers. Jackie Bulger, the third brother, was a clerk in Boston Juvenile Court. Uh, I knew him. Uh, I knew Bill Bulger, who was a state senator. President of the became, state senate. Became yeah. senate president. And then, and then head of, uh, chancellor or whatever of the, of the state. UMass system, yeah. yeah. And I knew Jimmy, Whitey Bulger, sort of. Didn't really know him because he was a sociopath. Uh, but I would see him occasionally at this liquor store that he used to own partially, silently, at a rotary, uh, traffic rotary in South Boston. And there was a time, a period in the 1980s, probably 1985 through about 1988 or 1989, where Bill Bulger would not speak to me 
because I had written that nothing moves, cocaine trafficking, heroin trafficking, nothing moves in South Boston without the tacit consent and knowledge of Whitey Bulger. And looking back on it, he it began not speaking to me, but him arguing violently with me that it wasn't true, that he knew more about what was going on than I did with regard to drugs and his brother. Mm-hmm. And because he had, he had contacts in the FBI who told him that his brother had nothing to do with it while yeah. we found out about yeah, the Yes, so his brother had good contacts in the FBI yeah, too. his brother had better contacts than, than Bill did. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Bill was a very smart guy, is a very smart guy. And he ran the Senate the way any tough-minded, skillful, internal, politically-minded senator, congressman, whatever would do. I mean, oh, he, yeah, he was—he was a—he was a—he was, a, uh, was a masterful legislative yeah. leader. Ultimately, brought down by loyalty to his brother. Yes, yeah. I mean, but you talk to the various governors who worked with him, uh, and Bill Weld, a Republican, former former U.S. attorney in Boston, who knew far more about the Whitey Bulger story than I think he's ever let on, mm-hmm. uh, got along famously with Bill Bulger. Paul mm-hmm. Salucci, his successor, Republican, got along famously uh, with uh, Bill Bulger. So you, you talked about how much you, uh, you loved uh, writing this column. You ran into a problem, uh, you know, accusations of, uh, of plagiarism. And, you know, my thought when I read that story was... Uh, I don't know how people write three, four, five columns a week, especially columns that are kind of literature. Yeah. Uh, And so, uh, but I guess my question is, I don't want to go through chapter and verse, the history of all of that. Right. But uh, you acknowledge that there were that you cut corners in places where you, you shouldn't have cut corners. Yeah, sure. I mean, that comes out of laziness. Pure but, but how much of it comes out of you know? We talked earlier about you jumping right to column writing, yeah. Front when you were a kid, a uh, kid journalist, uh, and how much of it? How much of it do you think uh, was from that and and the sort of not working the graveyard shift as I mean I don't want to say as I did but I did uh, and having to uh, dot you know dot every I and cross every T and 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 being given sort of literary license from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I you know, this is me speaking, right? So my defense is probably going to be suspect because it's me defending it. Uh, I began writing the column in 1973. The charges that you're referring to are from 1998. Uh, how come I wasn't caught before 1998 if indeed, you know, I did anything? I'll tell you the root of the plagiarism thing. In retrospect, 20 years later, it's, it's kind of funny. It was tragic to me then. It's kind of funny today. The root of it is I used to do occasionally about twice a month a Sunday column. Uh, I was just thinking. And it would be a series of about 84 lines, different topics, different lines. Try to be funny in halfway, half of them. And it was rewriting a couple of George Carlin jokes. That's the root of the plagiarism, that I was copying jokes. Was I copying jokes? I was copying the root of a joke, uh, you know, changing, you know, mm-hmm. names and locations or whatever, but the idea of the joke, yeah, sure, that was in my mind from George Carlin's routines. The funny part about it is I immediately 
heard from George Carlin, who I had met a couple of times, and he said, I'm sending you my new book. He had a book out in the summer of 1998. He said, in order to eliminate the middleman, <laughs> I still have a copy of the book with his autograph. I got a call when you know the charges were leveled and it was in all the papers. I got a call from Jerry Lewis who was outraged that they were doing this to me. I thought, I thought to offer you some material. No, because clearly he was talking about, you know, my God, I would, if this was a serious charge, he says, I would have been in jail 30 years ago. You, that, you, you, were, uh, you were the king of Boston. I mean, if, when people say Boston, the, the first name that people would think of after the Kennedys, maybe <laughs> well, I don't know was about was that. was Mike Barnacle because you were so much so endemic to the town. How how painful was it to have that blow up? It was awful. It was awful. It was awful. I mean, my, I mean, TV crews camped outside of your house. Uh, you know, front page of the New York Times, an editorial in the New York Times. And you got to remember, back then, 1998, there, there was no Twitter, there was no texting, there was no real internet to speak of. So in terms of defensive tools, explanation tools, none of that existed. The thing that I remember the most, the thing that I remember the most to this day, that sits internally in me each day, is that all the people writing about it, what happened? What went on? What's the story? I never got a single call. You know, David Broder writing about it. He never called me. I used to call people or go see people. What's your side of the story? It, it, it struck me then, and it strikes me now. But, but it, was, it was crushing. Uh, you know, one of my kids had his birthday on, on one of the days. It was a, there was a fever, it seemed to me, like an obsession with me. Uh, camera crews following around, following me around. Uh, it, was, it was horrendous. How, uh, how did that change you? And, and how did you recover from it? Well, it changed me, you know, and I fight the negative way it changed me, my attitude toward some elements of the media. Uh, it changed me in the sense that, you know, I find myself being much more sympathetic uh, to others caught in various plights, personal or political or public. I want to know, well, you know, what's the real deal? What really happened? Uh it you find out that you know it's like baseball you get knocked down you know you got to get back you got to get back in the box you cannot give up you cannot quit um uh, so it, it it reinforced that in me uh it, it it in the end it made me stronger it made me more aware of my weaknesses uh i mean i i can still remember where I was and what I was doing on the Saturday morning, a summer Saturday morning, when I was writing that column, you know, reworking the Carlin jokes. I can remember it to this day. Mm -hmm. And I can remember everybody who called and said, you know, what do you need? I'm here to help you. You're getting screwed. I can remember every single person like that. 
So you, you, you've reinvented yourself. Uh, you're still writing, writing for the Daily Beast. I mentioned that great column on, uh, yeah. on the Kennedy uh, funeral train. Um, and you're, you sit on the Morning Joe set many days a week. Um, what do you make of the times that we're in? You know, the Trump factor I find personally depressing. Uh, I find that it's it blocks. Got to talk about him a lot. Yeah, too much. It, it blocks out the sun. Uh, it, it blocks out what's going on in the country and to the country, which bothers me deeply. I mean, I have a a, a deep love of the idea that is America, and I am offended at much of what's going on, and I'm. I'm worried about the losses to us. I mean, does anybody know what has happened to the children's health program mm. in this country? Mm. Does anybody know what's going to happen to them now that the Affordable Care Act has been pretty much erased? Uh, does anybody know that, you know, the, the, the bounce that you got with the tax bill, uh, that's going to disappear? And you, certain prices are going up because he thinks he can win a trade war. Uh, does anybody know or think about the internal damage done by the assault on institutions of this country? And but didn't they send them in certain ways to, to, to shake up? They, people, you ask people, they say, well, he's shaking things up. Yeah, sure, he's shaking things up. But again, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, who are we? You know, if you ask kids, you know, about what they learn in high school history, they don't learn much. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not really taught the story of America. They're not taught. They don't. They're not taught about how did your your dad, my parents, and millions of others come here and carve out the lives yeah. that they carved out that we prosper because of it. Uh, I mean, who are we? Uh, Memorial Day tweet. The guy issues. Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, happy the, Memorial Day. Yeah. For, thanks to everybody who ever served in the economy. Look at it because of what I've done. It's booming. Nice. Is yeah. How it ended. So, nice. Sorry. You know, yeah. Uncle Jerry killed at Midway on June 4th, 1942. But look at unemployment today is really roaring. You know, you lost your brother, your uncle, your father in Omaha Beach in 1944. But look at what, look what I've done. The guy is clueless about who we are and yeah. about our story, which is the story of America. Um. You and I have many things in common, uh, and many of them we've talked about here. One of the things we haven't talked about is our children, and Mm. uh, we both have daughters who have struggled mightily with epilepsy. Your uh, astonishing wife, uh, Anne Finucane, who's the vice chair of Bank of America, uh, and you have both been huge supporters of an organization my wife started called Cure to raise research money for that. Talk a little bit about that and about epilepsy and and the battles that Julia has uh, Well, first of all, I mean, thank God for Susan Axelrod for raising the awareness of this basically silent uh, illness, disease that affects so many and changes and alters the lives of of families, entire families. Uh, Our daughter is challenged on several fronts because of the seizures uh, that she suffered and still suffers to a certain extent, but not as much as she suffered during 
a period of time when she was three, four, five, mm. seven, eight yeah. years of age, very little way to measure it. Um, and so because of my wife, like your wife, uh, there was no giving up in terms of helping Julia Barnacle combat this. And we went everywhere. We went, uh, you know, to St. Louis. We went out to, uh, uh, what's the hospital in Chicago? We went out there multiple times. Uh, Lurie's Hospital, Children's Hospital? No, nope, keep going. Uh, Rush? Rush. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we were over That's at Rush. That's where my daughter was treated. Over at Rush several times. Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, various medications, steroids, m- various medications. And Which we would, are, by the way, only slightly better than the seizures themselves in terms of the toll they exact on Well, people. that's it. That's it. I mean, you pay a price for progress. You know, medical progress, any kind of progress. I mean, you pay a price. And Julia paid a price. But we were told on her birthday, uh, her fifth birthday, we were told by a, a doctor that uh, she was, they used the word retarded then, mm-hmm. um, and you got to live with it. And, you know, both of us, my wife and myself, we said, no, 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 that's not true. No, no. You know, maybe operating in somewhat denial back then, but we said, no, we're going to show you she's not. Then we were told when she was six that, you know, well, she, you know, she's better, but she's never going to be able to read. No, 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 she'll be able to read. And my wife, God love her, I mean, you know, you'd follow her anywhere. Yes. And uh, so today, Julia is a junior in college. Yeah. Uh, she takes a couple of courses a semester. It's difficult, uh, but she'll, she'll graduate next year. Uh, she reads, she writes, uh, she just went to work, she has a part-time job, uh, she still lives with us at home. Uh, but she's been cheated out of a lot. And when you're the parent of a child like that, as you know, one of the things you are really acutely aware of is the, the losses that your child suffers, especially compared to other children. They're not children now. They're young right. women, right. approximately the same age. And you're walking home from work here in New York or walking around Boston. You'll see... Some other young woman, approximately the same age as your daughter or my daughter, and for a second you'll say, "Oh wow, yeah, it could have been Julie." But then you, know, you can't let yourself go to that no, dark place. No, you can't. I'm just uh, happy my Lauren is uh, uh, healthy, and she's happy, and uh, That's we it. never we didn't think that was possible. That's it. So, but. It, but she should have had more. Yes, and uh, and I, I I must say both our daughters are inspiring young women. And uh, every time I have a bad day, I think about what my kid's been through, and I think you know what That's this it. is a walk in the park. Yeah, absolutely, it's a walk in the park. Mike Barnacle, it's uh, always good to be with you, man. David, and, uh, a pleasure. And. Uh, uh, keep slugging away. Good luck to the Cubs. Yes, sir. Well, I'll see you at the World Series. Okay, I hope so. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.